When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Adam McKay, and you are listening to Rock and Roll Archaeology. Pantheon Podcasts presents Deeper Digs in Rock, part of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Music, culture, technology, and rock and roll. Now, on with the show. Hey, diggers. Uh, Yesterday, I got so old, I felt like I could die. Uh, But then I remembered you guys. Hey, Christian Swain here, uh, the rock and roll archaeologist, coming to you from the San Francisco headquarters of Pantheon Media, Pantheon Podcasts, Pantheon, Pantheon, the Pantheon of rock and roll, rock and roll archaeology. Oh, all that good stuff. Uh, Breaking news. Our latest entry to the Pantheon Podcast Network launches this week. History in Five Songs with Martin Popoff is the new show that aims to make grand uh, and often oddball hard rock and heavy metal points through a narrative uh, built upon the tiny idea of a quintet of songs. It's going to be buttressed with uh, illustrative clips. Uh, Martin argues quickly and succinctly why these particular songs and the specific sections of the tracks used support his mad professor premise. Uh, you know, kind of like from the wobbly invention of an American heavy metal to the influence of Led Zeppelin in hair metal or to more succinct topics like tapping and twin leads. The songs serve as bricks, but Martin uh, slathers plenty of mortar. Uh, At the end, hopefully he has a sturdy house built in which uh, that particular week's theory can reside unbothered by the elements. Yes, folks, this is going to be a weekly show. We're really, really excited to have Martin join our network and can't wait for you guys to hear all about it. And of course, let us know what you think. All right. Like I said, uh, that's a baker's dozen for now. 13 shows on the network. But uh, that's not going to last very long because we have more in the pipeline. So the shout out this week goes to my partner in crime, Peter Ferrioli, who's been doing the lion's share of finding many of our new entries and working diligently to get you, dear diggers, more rock and roll themed content. So let's hear it for Peter. All right, quick reminder to uh, check us out at, uh, you know, the social media spots. The Old Man Facebook at the R-N-R-A-P. Instagram at R-N-R, and that's letter N, R-N-R. All of them are letter N. R-N-R Archaeology. And on Twitter, uh, where we have lots of fans, lots of action going on in Twitter. I probably spend most of my time uh, looking at everybody on Twitter. I do Facebook, too. I am. I guess I do Instagram. I probably spend too much time on on social media. Um, but <laughs> anyway, again, like Instagram at R&R Archaeology, so is Twitter at 
RNR archaeology. Um, all right. Uh, let's see. Oh, you know, um, Twitter, uh, excuse me, Twitter, Patreon, Patreon. Again, just to remind everybody, if you want to help out a little bit, uh, keep the lights on, keep the shows going, help us find more shows. You can contribute just a little bit. Uh, even a dollar a month would be fantastic. Anything uh, helps us as we build up this network. Uh, with our audience, you, the diggers in mind. It's all about you. Really what we try to concern ourselves on a daily basis is what do you guys want to hear and what more can we get uh, for you to carve out uh, a little uh, portion of podcasting uh, that's dedicated to uh, music. So uh, anything you can do, you know, you can go to uh, patreon.com backslash rock and roll podcast, singular rock and roll podcast. We do get a little help this week, a sponsor for this week's show, from the good people at CBD Vermont, which partners with organic farms in the great state of Vermont, uh, no surprise, to produce organically grown hemp used in full-spectrum extracts available for sale at cbdvermont.com. Hey, use the code DDIR for Deeper Digs in Rock, DDIR, to get 15% off all of their products. There are a lot of CBD products out there. So, you know, you got to ask yourself, how do you know what you're getting? Well, <laughs> CBD Vermont tests all of its extracts to ensure you're getting the right amount of CBD and other cannabinoids without the unwanted toxins. Plus, each batch is traced to the Vermont farm where it was grown and the hemp cultivar that was extracted. They've recently launched an online store where you can buy Vermont-made CBD products, including oils, capsules, edibles, and topicals. And they've all been fully vetted by the staff at CBD Vermont. Now, I'll tell you, I used to be a skeptic. Well, I am a skeptic, but I used to really be a skeptic about CBDs. See, I, I'm not a, a big pot smoker. Uh, you catch me doing this uh, maybe once or twice a year, uh, usually at a dead show. Uh, but I've used the topicals and, uh, for some minor aches and pains. And uh, to my astonishment, uh, they actually work. So uh, I guess I'm a converted fan now. All right, go to cbdvermont.com and use the code DDIR at checkout to get 15% off. Okay, that's it for this week. Let's get to our guest. Now, the first thing you're going to say is to be or not to be. It's going to come up in a second. To be or not to be. To free or not to free. To crawl or not to crawl Fuck all those perfect people To sleep or not to sleep This week's guest is a, a bit of a legend and a legend with a new album and a song that uh, apparently is blowing up right now. Uh, I just played the song Fuck All the Perfect People from the new album Whiskey Salesman, 
recently released by none other than Chip Taylor. Chip has been at this songwriting thing for a long time, so it's not really a surprise that, again, he's hit on something. Uh, He wrote Wild Thing in 1965, uh, first made famous by English garage rockers, the Trogs, and then covered by Jimi Hendrix. And uh, let's think on that for a second. Downright dirty, sexy rock and roll. So another huge hit Chip is responsible for is Angel in the Morning. Uh, Just about the opposite in feeling and tone. But let's not forget uh, I Can't Let Go, recorded by Evie Sands, The Hollies, and the untouchable Linda Ronstadt. Or try uh, just a little bit harder, most famously covered by Janis Joplin in her Cosmic Blues Band. Uh, But there are also songs with Willie and Waylon, uh, Emmylou Harris, Anne Murray, Uh, And then there is Kiss guitarist Ace Frehley with Rock Soldier. Chip is just one of those guys who was born to live an interesting and adventure-filled life and, lucky for us, wrote a lot about it. In case you don't know, Chip is the brother to Academy Award-winning actor John Voight and the esteemed volcanologist Barry Voight. It also makes him the uncle of Angelina Jolie, I I just had to put that in here for me. Uh, One more interesting fact before we start. He quit the music business in the 1980s to be a professional gambler and was so damn good at it, he was banned from Las Vegas and Atlantic City. In 1997, he quit the cards and the ponies for good to return to his music career and has been putting out quality work ever since, uh, though mostly recorded for himself and his own label, Chainwreck Records. Diggers, I give you Chip Taylor. Once I was a whiskey salesman. I got some work cutting flowers. When I finally got up on the stage, oh man, I could I could play and sing for hours. But then the horses came along. They seemed to like me. And didn't I love the horses? Now some ran crooked sometimes, some ran straight. One I bet on didn't come across the finish line till quarter past eight. I was in my formative years of Chip Taylor, uh, welcome to Deeper Digs and Rock. How are you doing today? I'm doing okay, Christian. How about you? I'm doing pretty darn uh, pretty darn well myself uh, here. Uh, I, I think we, uh, in our little green room discussion, we uh, we established you're on one coast of America and I'm on the other coast of America, and we'll just talk about all the in-betweens. How about that? Sure. All right. So first question, uh, because this is a little unusual, um, professional golfer. So how's your handicap these days? Oh, I don't, I don't play at all anymore. I, my dad was a golf pro, and when I was growing up, and I, I tapped in the high school team, and I was a good junior golfer in the Westchester and metropolitan area of New York and played in the National Junior, broke a course record here, uh, two horse course records, but I wasn't great, great. Like, when I, when I turned pro, I, I couldn't, like, beat the best of the best. You, and, you, you uh, knew right away that uh, that you were, you, you were good uh, good with the foursome, but uh, maybe not out on the tour. Yeah, I mean, I played in a couple of tournaments. I finished seventh in my first one that I did. It was like a New York State tournament. But my 
my dream always back then was to be in the music business and I loved golf but it didn't I didn't want it to be my my occupation I wanted it to be in music if at all possible but was your dad kind of pushing you towards uh, the golf you said he's a professional he wasn't no you, you know the truth of the matter is dad and mom never pushed the boys you know I have two brothers Barry and John Barry's the guy that Barry Voigt, uh, the real last name. He's the guy that invented the formula that predicts when volcanoes will erupt. And yeah, yeah, you, 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 you have brothers. quite an interesting family. Let's just establish to uh, our fans uh, here that your brother is John Voigt. Uh, so the three well, of my you, brothers is John and one is Barry. Yeah, <laughs> that's pretty crazy. All three of <laughs> you have achieved, yeah, have achieved uh, quite uh, a bit of greatness during your lives, huh? Yeah, I mean, you would ask the question before, did Dad want to push me toward golf? And that's kind of, the, I think, the secret of the Voigt family. Uh, it was one of the things that Dad and Mom did. They wanted to challenge us to see what what we were moved by. And they were always interested by that. I mean, that's Dad great. used to wake up in the morning. I remember when he would go to work, to, you know, he was a golf professional. He, he taught people how to play golf at the country club. Nice. And every morning he would get up around the same time as we did to go to school. And he's, no matter what kind of day it was outside, he'd always come up with a smile on his face, open the door and say, okay, boys, here we go. What's, 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 gonna, what, what's, what's the adventure of today? today? Right, right. Really, really, that's kind of nice. So it yeah. instilled this uh, curiosity for life uh, from an early age. Huh? Yes, yeah, yep, yep. Yeah, yeah. And, all, and all three of you got yeah, well, I mean, they'd always be interested in what Barry was thinking about. And Barry'd say, "Oh, I got these rocks today up in the mountains, and this is what they are." And we have them at the dinner table, we're looking at them, and and John would always do these uh, wonderful little skits, like Sid Caesarish kind of skits <laughs> for the family. Like when he was eight, nine years old, he was brilliant and funnier than hell, and uh, we knew he he was heading for something like that. And me, I had my ear blew to the radio in the hallway, which mom and dad kind of let me commandeer because they knew I liked music and I knew I loved music. And, and so, um, it was, a, we were all encouraging each other, like, and it was fun. Yeah. So, uh, you were born in 1940. So, you know, you're 15 and they right. say, they say that like, you know, 13, 14, 15, 16 is, is when you find your music. Uh, and so obviously 1955 is, uh, quite a year for this new type of music called rock and roll. What, what, what did you think about that when that hit the radio? Well, I, I would disagree with what you said there, that that was the time you really find your music when you're 15 years old. I found my music earlier than that. And oh, okay. uh, I remember when I was like seven or eight years old, my mother and father babysat me at a concert at a Broadway play. In other words, there was no babysitter, so they took me down. They had an extra ticket, and I did not want to do it. I didn't want to go there at all. But I sat in the fourth row of the, of the theater, and the orchestra started to play. And I was like mesmerized. Not, there wasn't so much the songs or anything, but it was the orchestra. Just the, the, sound the, the, of the players themselves uh, was the interesting well, it was thing the, for Whatever you. it was, it was a sound that covered, uh, physically covered my whole body to the point when I went home with mom and dad, I made believe I was sleep, sleeping in the back of the car because I didn't want them to interrupt this feeling that I was still feeling and how powerful and wonderful it was. And it, it's the same feeling I had when I heard and the Motorola radio when it, when I first heard Wheeling West Virginia when I was about nine. 
and then I heard country music, and that just came through my whole body. And it wasn't the fun, clever things that I wanted to hear. It was all the, the sad stuff, and that and that's <laughs> what what was. That's was, country uh, music was, for you, right? Right. Well, it's not always country music, but I like the sad part of country music. Uh-huh. And it was, a lot of times it was clever and fun things and stuff like that. But that's it wasn't for me. Wow. So it wasn't it wasn't rock and roll. It was it was country music that first grabbed you. Country music that started me when I was in high school. When I was 15, I was the lead singer in a, in a rockabilly band. So we played country music and a little bit of the blues country. And and all of a sudden, Sun Records was coming in with Elvis Presley. I forgot to remember to forget her and those kind of things. And I, and I was attached to that. And that's I first got in the business as a country and western songwriter. That's how I made my mark. Because Chet Atkins, who was not only the brilliant guitar player, he was yeah, also the head. Yeah. He was the head of RCA Victor. He heard heard one of my demos and told the New York publisher, "said Jerry, I'm cutting that song you sent out. I have no idea who Chip Taylor is. It is very hard for me to believe he's from New York." He said, "But wherever, <laughs> but wherever he's wherever he's from, I want to hear." He everything. understands. He understands. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, so <laughs> So Chet Atkins is really responsible for getting you into the music business. Well, he cut that song with the Brown family. It was my favorite group, one of my favorite groups. It's not my all-time favorite groups. And then he cut another one with Eddie Arnold, and he cut another one with John Latimer III, and then I had a hit with Bobby Bear, and Willie Nelson recorded one of mine, and Johnny Cash recorded one of mine. And I was, uh, Waylon Jennings had a big hit with one of mine. So I, I was in the business as a country and western writer and before i wrote my big rock and roll hits and uh, whatever you call them but yeah 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 but it was country music that spoke to you country music that you first entered into the business with and you're a kid from new york that is yeah, a little bit yeah, unusual yeah, right. yeah i was the only one i knew that was doing that and all of a sudden i was in the business at one of those buildings they call it the brill building era it really yeah. wasn't the brill building that was the most thing that it wasn't the most important building. The most important building was 1650 Broadway. That's where Jerry Goffin and Carol King were. That's where Barry Mann, Cynthia Wilde were. That's where Burt Burns was, Neil Diamond, Juggy Murray, and Bang Records. It was, like, it was like the building. And I was there because of country music. I was the only one in that building that was writing country songs. And then mm-hmm. pretty soon I started writing some, I used blues influences to start writing some other than country things and had some hits. Yeah. So you're known as a writer, but did you really start off as a performer and, and that's really kind of what you wanted to be? And then you just kind of found uh, a niche in the writing thing and uh, that's kind of where they put you in a, in a, in a box? Is, is, is that Does that sound right? That's a very good question. The first thing I had I was signed as an artist to King Records, the old black division of King Records. Yeah. And mm-hmm. uh, and I had a few singles. I, and they liked the – and Henry Glover, the guy that's just worked with James Brown and, you know, yeah. discovered John – so many, so many big, big, big artists and uh, Little Willie John and some others. He he took a liking to me, and we, we tried a few things, and it didn't work, and that's when I turned my sights on writing for other people. And I was just so happy to be in the business – Christian, you know, I wasn't like I, I was saying, oh God, why can't I be out there doing it? I was so excited when I somebody would record one of my songs and it would be a hit. I never, never said, oh, I wish I had it. No, I, I didn't. I, 
I was really, really excited about it. It was wonderful, you know, to be part of all of that. A little bit later, as the 60s, you know, that was throughout the 60s that I was writing my big hits. And then in the 70s, I got the inkling to record again. And that's when I went back to my roots with an album called Last Chance. And before that, with one called Gasoline. And, and, I, uh, and I started to tour, and that was good, too. But I, I, to say that I wasn't breaking away from something I didn't like. I, I loved writing for other people, and I loved doing it myself. So. And uh, over the years, you, you've gotten a chance to pretty much do everything in the in the music business, including owning your own record company. Yeah, well, it was kind of a matter. My own record company kind of evolved. When I first came back to music, it was kind of, who the heck is going to want me? And then all of a sudden... I just released a... a yeah, because you, you took a break, uh, I think, between 1980 and about 1993 yeah. to be a professional gambler? Right. You you are a country song. Yeah. I was always very good at, uh, like, brainy kind of things I and mean, mathematics and stuff like that. I, I was an extremely good card counter, and they finally banned me oh. from all the casinos. This is at the time when I was starting to write my hits. I would take a little... Uh, excursion down for five or six days out in Atlantic City, and they let me play for a while, and then they they banned me from every every casino one in, in one week's period of time. They decided that the card counters would hurt them, but I turned my sights to horse race handicapping, and I got very very good at that. And I teamed up with a guy named Ernest Dowman, who was one of the uh, the New York Times called him the Wizard of Odds. He was probably the biggest money maker and most consistent money maker anybody ever knew in the gambling game and he wonderful family man a good guy and we teamed up from 1981 to 1995 when I my mother got ill and I just told him I said Ernie I said I think I really want to go back to playing music and I can't do both so uh, I'm gonna have to stop so I did that's a that's a crazy story yeah. and we'll talk a little bit about that in a bit because that's in the 80s. Um, but uh, I do find it interesting that, you know, you ended up doing so many different things. Um, but back to the music, you know, as you said, it, it didn't matter. As long as you were in the business, you were happy as a clam uh, because that's what spoke to you. That's what uh, what you wanted to do from an, an, a very early age, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I must say that I love gambling as well. Really loved it. I loved that, that was a huge, hugely wonderful period of time in my life. But uh, going back to music, I knew I was fulfilling something in my heart when I decided, okay, now I'm going to go out. I'm going to play for whoever wants to hear me play, and I'm going to make music from now on in. So I've been releasing an album every year or even more sometimes, and I'm very prolific, and I, lo I love doing it. And uh, at this period of time, it's surprising that all of a sudden I have a couple of very big Spotify things and now one that went viral and put people really on the map now with that, but I never expected that. I mean, I'm just, just writing songs about things that I'm, in fact, the one that went viral is the song I wrote for prisoners. Uh, that was, what was that again? The song that went viral is the song I wrote for prisoners back about five years ago. I played a lot of prison shows and I love doing it. It's not like I love walking into the prisons and having the door closed, but I, I feel very rewarded after I played for prisoners and talked to them, and I made make sure that the the warden would know that that's what I wanted to do: play a certain amount, and then I spend a bunch of time talking to the prisoners, and that was very re rewarding for me. So now all of a sudden I have a song that 
uh, called blank all the perfect people and uh, oh no uh, you can you can say fuck all the perfect uh, people yeah okay. <laughs> yeah yeah you can you yeah we, we can curse on this show. no problem uh and and yeah because that that ends up on the netflix uh yeah. series uh yeah. the english high school dramedy sex education uh, yeah it's actually quite a good thing yeah have, have you seen the show have you, have have you did you binge show, watch the whole series yeah i i I happen to really love it. I mean, I think it's a, it's a, oh, shocked, it's a me. Show, it shocked me that it was so well done. And, and it's dealing with a lot of things that, you know, are kind of yeah. been behind closed doors for a long time. And now they open the doors and you see a lot of blatant sex and stuff like that. But they don't handle it in a crude way. They handle it in, in, in the way that you see the kids trying to find out who they are with it. And, and in an awful lot of ways, is like a morality play and a a beautiful, beautiful interaction with the kids trying to find themselves. And I think they did a wonderful job with their show. And the way they used my my song was just amazing. And one of the most important, most potent parts of... Uh, of the entire, sh- of the entire well, series. Well, yeah. I'm sure it was at episode two, or whatever you call that. But it was just a beautiful part. I, I got chills when I, when I saw the way they used it. Yeah. You know, uh, in a strange coincidence, uh, this Sunday I'm seeing Ezra Furman, who, you know, they use a lot of his songs. Uh, I think he ends up being the uh, musical director for the uh, for the show, which means he probably picked your song. to. to wow. Play. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. So is it nice to be, you know, uh, at a, uh, a, a, let's say, an advanced age and be a part of a television event geared towards the younger generation? Well, what's nice about it is is to have so many nice uh, fans of my music. It's a kind of a funny period of time, Christian, because at first it was a scary when, when period when records started not selling very much and and streaming was coming up and most people could get, fairly much get it for free and stuff like that. But what this period of time has done is it, it's changed the, the playing field and it play, changed the way it's been done, I think, for the better. In other words, when you had, when I had an album out previously, you say 10 years ago or something, the promotion person that was promoting the album to radio would say to me, what's, what's the hit single, you know? And they'd always yeah. try to find the up-tempo one to play forever and ever. Now, people on Spotify, they don't, they're not getting promoted. They play what they want to play. They, they hear what they want to hear. And on my top 15... It's like all my favorite songs are on top that that thing, including "Fuck All the really? Perfect People." And but uh, yeah, they're my favorites, absolutely my. Yeah, favorites. I mean, you you've had a a very long career in the music industry, and one of my questions was going to be how you've seen it evolve. So we're in the middle of that right now, uh, and the thing that you're finding because you know, most of the established artists have not been really happy with the uh, the streaming services because of the change in uh, royalty. Uh, rates and you know a, a lot have been very vociferous in their complaints about that, but you don't see it that way. You no, I, I, see I, I that. Yeah, I know it's I know it's getting better and better in terms of the amount that they're paying, and it will get better and better because you know Spotify and uh, there are new things that have not really you know it's like I haven't really broken even yet, but they're just about to. They're starting to make money, and yeah. but it's the way it's the way you can all of a sudden find. It, you've got fans all over the world, you know. Right. And and right. and some right. people are starting to use my songs in various things. Are they use in in a commercial? And 
Norway, and it broke one of my songs wide open on Spotify from this beautiful commercial that they use. We're using my song. And, and uh, you know, that would never happen in radio. The, all these things are songs that would never happen in radio. So, no, because, uh, yeah, because you had the gatekeepers, and the gatekeepers decided yeah. uh, what, what should or shouldn't be played. And yeah. your point is that in the end, you, you know, you may not have picked those songs that the, uh, the PR people uh, did, but on this streaming service, you're, you're finding that the, you know, democratization of it, uh, the ability for anybody to uh, decide what they like or, or don't like is is the cream from your perspective is really rising to the top and that the top songs are your favorite songs and they're probably the best songs I mean you're you're the guy who created them you would know best and they're 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 those things are matching up yeah that's wow. that's, that's exactly right and I I've seen it happen in the music business so often you know you know all my years in the music business that the general public out there's got a lot of soul, but and let's and let's establish. I mean, this is the, the late fifties. You get into the music business, right. so we're talking sixty years uh, of watching this industry evolve. Oh yeah, and the one thing I just noticed over the years is a lot of the people that were making decisions were using their brain to make decisions as to what songs would be popular, and not they weren't using their heart and their soul. And you you get the people out there if you give them something. It really touches their heart. <laughs> they don't care if it's six minutes long or seven minutes long, or they don't care if it's up tempo or not. But uh, uh, they're just not moved the way radio promo people thought about it. You know, it's, and it's nice to see that that's the way. Yeah, and it is, and it should be strictly an emotional connection. Yeah. That's right. That should be the uh, telltale of everything when it comes to what music you know is popular, uh, if you will, and it should be done by the uh, the audience themselves having an emotional connection and sharing that experience yeah. Yeah. with others. Who then it, then it goes quote unquote viral, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, I just think it's way better now than it was before, and then, and some of these things go viral, and just like on my top fifteen, there's not one of them that I don't like. You know, there's not one of them that I wouldn't want to play in a show or something like that, where years ago they would just always go to the, the most up-tempo song in your album to decide that that's what they're going to promote. And, uh, I'm just saying it's a nice period of time like that, and it's going to get nothing but better. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, the the music industry was one of the first uh, to actually be disrupted by this new information age that we all swim in these days. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it started with Napster uh, yep. in uh, 1997, and, you know, that completely changed the formula. And, uh, you know, there were fits and starts, and there definitely was uh, – pushback uh, from the establishment itself. Uh, and, and maybe things could have progressed a little quicker, but certainly by the time you get into um, you know the streaming age, which starts at about 2011, 2012, you find that uh, there's now an accepted distribution model, which is a modern distribution model. And mm -hmm. now the, the people, the individuals get to decide. And those that are you know quality, um, you, you would think would rise to the top. And that's what you're beginning to see uh, yourself, right? Yeah, I, and I wouldn't say that I, I was part of the naysayers in the beginning too. You know what? Nobody's going to pay us for the yeah. but uh, then, <laughs> then then pretty quickly, you know, in the last uh, five years or so, I just 
all of a sudden came to the realization, like, how wonderful it is to have somebody in uh, Germany or, or the Philippines or Poland hear my songs on Spotify and write these little things and, and my breakouts occur and all over the world and instead of just in my little place that I'm playing my music or one town or something like that. So it's nice. It's a very nice time for me. Yeah. So you hit on something that I want to to bring back. I think is the answer is you're really big in Sweden. So how'd that happen? But I think maybe it was because of a commercial? No. uh, Norway was the commercial this last year. Uh, But uh, the reason I was big in Sweden, when I first came back to making music in... uh, the late 90s, somebody from Sweden called me up. Uh, it was a distributor, and he said, Chip, would you, I hear you're back making music. Would you mind coming over here and playing a show? And I went over to do one show, and it spread from there. And within a couple of years, my album, Black and Blue America, became just a magical album in Norway, and in Sweden, and Norway, and England, and Holland. And all of a sudden, I was just, you know, with these amazing reviews and all of a sudden I was almost like a rock star in Sweden. I would be closing, <laughs> yeah. closing the show at three in the morning and this, it was surprising and that, that fan base has stuck with me over there and every time I have an album out, new album out, it's important to them and uh, and I come over to, um, I'll leave in a little while and in uh, 10 days or so, my wife and I are going to head for Copenhagen and Sweden and Norway and we'll, we'll play for Sold out shows and with wonderful friends over there, and the uh, you know not huge shows with two hundred, four hundred, five hundred, whatever it is. Yeah, but a real a real rock star of Northern Europe. Hey, that was that was when I was a rock star, and then, <laughs> but uh, it's just mellowed out, and uh, I've got this nice bunch of fans there. You know, you've actually recorded an album uh, with uh, with a Swedish group. In fact, I think uh, "Fuck All the Perfect People" is with the yeah, new, new, the new Ukrainians, Ukrainians, right? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I named them the new Ukrainians after some rebellious young Ukrainian ladies I met at my local bar, and uh, <laughs> um, and the band was just quite amazing. And yeah. it was uh, yeah. uh, one guy from Norway and and uh, three guys from Sweden, and my other guitar player John Platani, the amazing John Platani from who played with Van Morrison on Moondance and Domino and uh-huh. all the philosophers and he and he did all those tours with Van. He's he's been my friend since that period of time and played with me since that period of time and now he's still playing with me. and he's just brilliant. So he's there and wonderful drummer from New York. So with the Van the new Ukrainian is just a hell of a man. We did a tour here uh, shortly after I did that album there and it was a wonderful little tour in the States. But I'm no more in the more in Europe than I am here, but uh, well, let, let's see if we can change that. So let's <laughs> let's talk a little bit about your new album, uh, Whiskey sure. Salesman. Uh, first, I got to say that the uh, the title sounds like an easy sales gig if you can get it. Uh, it sounds like what? <laughs> an easy. It sounds like an easy sales gig if you can get a whiskey salesman. Come on, that should that that should, stuff should roll off. You know, you know there's not a, not a lot of sales required there. Um, uh, uh, what's the theme uh, to the to this record? Well, the theme is the theme basically is kind of focuses around uh, my home area like my my home feelings like with my local bar parnell's bar on this one block away from my apartment and it's a lot of there's a lot of spirit with love songs for my wife 
And so it's yeah. I, I think there's an alternative title called "Love Songs for Joan." Right? Yeah, right. And 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 Joan now is you know we were married and divorced and remarried again, and and she's a kind of a and I and I believe you you guys met when you were 13, right? Yeah, I saw her from the top of a hill, and I asked my friend. I said, "Who's that? Who's that girl in the blue bathing suit by the diving board down there?" And he said, "That's Joan Fry." I said, "I'm going to marry her," and I did. And wow. And we're having wonderful times now, and uh, and so the spirit of this album is lo- my love for my wife Joan, and the love for my friends at the bar, and my and the waitresses and the bartenders, and and my love love for the spirit of all the people that are around us here, you know, and uh, it's just nice. <laughs> and then, oh, the thing the thing I wanted to tell you, Christian, I know you probably don't know this because you downloaded the the audio, but there's in this album contains there's eleven songs in the album. And at my bar, I have one table, one chair that I sit at all the time. It's like at a near a high stool, and I, and I always have my earbuds in, my, listening to what I'm working on. And up to be there's a there's a little television up above, and they always turn it to the golf channel when I come in. And I got all my friends that are always supporting me, whatever the hell I'm doing. And uh, and one day I was listening to actually Whiskey Salesman, and I had the earbuds in my ear, and I singing along with it. And all of a sudden, don't know me. So what if we had a camera or two in here just filming me and singing along with my songs and the bartender walking by and my friends at the bar hanging around and my wife in the mix too. I said, that would be, I said, that would make nice little videos, not fancy little things, but just, just home with me, you know, in the bar or in my apartment or whatever. And so that's what we do. We have 11 little videos for each, you have one little video for every song. Uh-huh. And one one of the videos is we sent it to a couple of film festivals, just almost like as a half joke. And one of them was accepted <laughs> accepted to the to the New Media Film Festival. So and so the actual video of Whiskey Salesman is going to be played at the uh, in this wonderful festival in California. Joan and I will walk the red carpet, and they switched it from the video to one of their most important film categories, which is the SRC category, which is socially redeeming content. <laughs> it was me singing wow. about me singing about the bar and, and a little bit about handicapping horses and handicapping life. And, and Oh, uh, that's right. It's a tale uh, of how to live life if you listen carefully and pay attention, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a great song. Yeah. Uh, I'll have to take a look at, uh, at the 11 videos here. Uh, and so will our diggers here. Yeah. 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 So it's funny as you were explaining there's a, this. So there's a D obviously there's a CD and a, and a DVD and it's in the same package. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. Oh, it's in the same package. Okay. So if you get the tangible physical product, right. you get both a, a CD and a DVD right. in, uh, in there. You know, it's funny as you're telling me these stories and you're telling me the theme and this, you know, uh, it sounds like it's uh, in, in just a couple of blocks uh, around Midtown uh, New York is, yep. is is what the album is based on. And I just couldn't help but think of an episode of Cheers. Uh, you know, uh, you're kind of a, a norm character who sits down, plops down into the same seat every single time. Right. And that's where you go to work. Right. It is like that. It is like that. The bartenders are all my best friends. The waitresses are my best friends. The, the guy that cleans the dishes is a great friend of mine. And so all of the people that work there are my friends and all the people that come there. There's a certain group of people that come there and they're just wonderful. And uh, I love the people. That come. It's a pub. You know, you can have good food there and everything like that. 
And as the evening hours come and it's past dinner time, you just sit there and and there's wonderful, wonderful conversations and and uh, just kind of like you said, like cheers. Yeah, it's nice. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, now I'm going to have to go and visit. Uh, okay, so you you mentioned that you sit down, you put your your earbuds in. Is is that kind of where you do a lot of, of your your songwriting? It's not songwriting. It's like if I started to work on a song, either just in my in my apartment, and I start to work on it, and I record it in some manner that I can hear it later, either the final recording or just a little demo recording. When I go down to the bar, I put the earbuds in, and I can just listen and see what I like and what I don't like and see if it's moving me in some way. And yeah, uh, more, more, more the editing process. Then. Yeah. But, and then sometimes it got to where I just really kind of listened to the different mixes cause it was pretty close to finish and stuff like that. I just make some notes and stuff. And also it's a kind of place that I like to just wind down and listen to whatever example would be, you know, back about, I guess almost a year ago or whatever, when John Prine had his, you know, his album out, The Tree of Forgiveness, I was just on Spotify. So here's another great advantage of Spotify. So John has his album out. And what are you going to do, run to Best Buy and try to find it? And you're not going to find it there. So I could listen to the whole thing on Spotify one night at Parnell's and wrote John an email and said, John, gee, I just spent the nicest, most uplifting evening I've had in a long time. And it, I just heard, I heard every track of your album, and I just, it's just magic to me, and it did me a lot of good. And uh, within five minutes, John wrote me back, saying, hey, Chip, that's made me feel so good. You made my night. He, by the way, I just informed you, and now, you know, we all know nothing's selling physically anymore. He says, it's selling like wildfire. That's John's sense of humor, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, 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 at least it's being listened by uh, like wildfire. Well, yeah, uh, it's a wonderful piece. What a wonderful yeah. album! Yeah, and I use some of this song. I, you know, that's one where he he's in heaven and he's uh, drinking vodka and ginger ale, playing in a band, smoking my own cigarettes. So I talk about John's little verse in the song I have called "A Sip or Two of Good Scotch." And, uh, yeah. yeah, so you were inspired by John Prine's album, and you threw a little bit of an homage uh, right. uh, into your own songwriting. Right, right. You know, you, you're so prolific, and you've been doing it so long. Um, is there a process that you stick to, or is it evolved, or, you know, is it lyrics first, uh, music second, or vice versa, or a mix of things? Or, you know, is there a formula that you stick to, or is there just not one? Well, no, there isn't. The way I kind of do it most all the time is I'm a, I'm a, a guy that kind of lets the spirit take over me. I don't try to take I mean, any spirit to it. And so normally I would pick up my guitar and start playing a song from yesterday that I wrote or something like that or getting ready to play one at a show. And But at some point I just pick up the guitar and start to play and not particularly think about anything. And then all of a sudden some line will come out that I have no idea what it means, but it feels nice to me. It feels good. And, and that's happened with most all. I would say 80% of my songs are written like that. I pick up the guitar and start to play some chords and a little feeling and hum a little bit. And then all of a sudden some line will come out. And most of the time I have no idea what it means. And then I say, what the hell? Oh, that's, that's, I mean, that's how I wrote Angel of the Morning. I, 
was playing these chords over and over again, and nothing was coming out. And then all of, maybe a half hour later, all of a sudden the line with the melody, there'll be no strings to bind your hands, not if my love can bind your heart. That came out. And I had no idea what it meant. I just had a, a chill all over my body, like the first time I heard that orchestra play at the Broadway play, or the first time I heard country music, I just was on fire. I wrote it down, played it again. I said, oh, wow, this is beautiful. What is What is it, you know? And then just this person who it was just took over me and just... It wrote itself within like 20 minutes. The whole song was finished. So it's really, it sounds like a spiritual sort of uh, moment that you know it when it takes over you that this is going to be good. That's correct. It's, the spirit takes over me. And and then at the end of it, like I just play it and it'll be written down and I'll try to see if I need to, you know, if I do, do I have to craft a little bit? Yeah, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. and, and maybe yes and maybe no and sometimes I still don't know what it means and I'll let it go because it just feels beautiful to me you know mm-hmm. and there is some people always take it like as an angel of the morning they take it like as a one night stand well this is, that's not how it was to me at all uh, to me it was like I, I mean I if I had to try to explain it in words now first of all I'm singing from the point of view of a woman when I'm singing it so you did, and, you and did write a, it from the point of view of the woman. Yeah, I mean that's just who I was at that, yeah. Period, yeah. that period of time when I, and and the love relationship felt to me like it was like one of these war zone kind of things where the hero and heroine maybe never going to see each other again, and they just love each other so much that this will be the love of the love will never die, though they may never see each other again. It was from that kind of spirit. It was nothing to do with like any little one night stand kind of thing. Nothing at all to do with that. Not mm-hmm. from my, my point of view. This was the love affair of all time, you know. By the way, it, so everybody knows, uh, it was actually recorded first, I think, in 1967, but in 1968, Merrily Rush uh, had right. a huge hit with it. Uh, and then, you know, a decade plus later, Juice Newton in 1981 had a huge hit with it as well. And it, listening to those both those versions, I'm with you. I, I didn't take it as a, as a one-night stand. I, I took it as something okay. far more romantic. Uh, but that's just, okay. you know, I, I, I have the heart of a romantic anyway. So, of course, well, you I, were I right. fall that way. So, well, <laughs> then, then, okay, so so here's, here's an interesting question. I mean— You know, I should say— if, I, if you don't mind me, I interrupt yeah, please, you for please. one second. Whenever we talk about this and uh, about who the first recording was, I always want to mention that the first recording, as you've mentioned, it was recorded by somebody else. That the somebody was Evie Sands. Yeah, Evie Sands. And Al, Al Gorgoni and I, my friend Al Gorgoni and I, produced Evie Sands back in the day. And she was an amazing singer. When she released the version of Angel of the Morning, the company went bankrupt the week it was shipped. And wherever this thing was oh. played, it was the top request record. And, so she would have had the huge record of it, but she did. For Marilyn, I don't want to take away from Marilyn's record. It was wonderful, and so was Juices and Anita Simone or whatever. So do you have a favorite? Is that too much to ask? Or, you know, do you do you hear the interpretation in, in each one? Or, uh, you know, is, is there one that maybe one day speaks to you, and then the next day it's a different one? I mean, what do you, what do you think of the three different versions? No, that's a good question. <laughs> that's a good question. Yeah, I guess so. You know, we, we, there, I think I've been very fortunate with that song and some other ones. 
of having wonderful records made of them. Merrily's was made by my friends. They asked if it was okay. Chip Smallman and Tommy Cockbill asked if they could cut it with Merrily, you know, because they knew the history of it with Evie and how what a heartbreak that was for yeah. Evie and us up and, you know, making a record. And then, uh, so I said, okay, to that, and that was great. And then Juice Newton, was, I knew the people were involved in that, and that was great. And, uh, and Nina Simone's version is wonderful. And, <laughs> I mean, and yeah, it, it, just like uh, so. I've been fortunate with all of them. Those are some big, those are some big voices you're mentioning there. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so I guess it, I guess it's just hard to pick. Uh, you know, each each one brings a a different interpretation uh, to your ears as the original writer. Yeah, that, that, but you know, you know something, Christian. By the way, I'll tell you when I wrote that song. When I wrote that song, in, as I sang. The interlude, which is the middle part of that thing. Yeah. Uh, then slowly turn away. I won't beg you to stay with me through the tears of the day of the years. Uh, when I wrote that part, and there was a certain pulse with it, I was humming a melody to myself that would go between the words. And so when I wrote the song, I made sure that that melody was included in the lead sheet. So that anybody who wanted to cover that song would see that. If it was ever used in a school play or anything, you, they would see that. And so you always hear. Yeah. And that's like, it almost reminds me of like Tara's theme or something like when going, going with the wind or something, you know, it, it, and I, and I love that part so much that I wanted to make sure everybody did it and they all use it. And it's in every version. Yeah, every, everyone. Yeah. That's amazing. That's amazing. Well, I'll tell you, I, I got a chance to listen to your version uh, live uh, here uh, in the last couple of days. And to me, that was pretty amazing as well. So uh, your 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 own version should be up there uh, along with those. Groups. Well, I don't know. I don't. Know. I love all the others. I love the yeah. ladies too. <laughs> yeah. Well, and so you know, I I got to bring up another great voice that you wrote for, which is a, a one of my favorite songs she ever did, which is "Try," uh, just a little bit harder by Janis Joplin. Uh, and uh, how did that come about? Well, it was kind of a funny thing. I, I uh, you know, in, in, in this life, you turn left, you turn right, and something happens or doesn't happen, you know. And I was lucky to get in the business by a nice, some nice coincidences, coincidences, and meeting people the right time. And somebody I knew knew Jerry Ragavoy, and Jerry had come in from Philadelphia, where he was creating a little cult following there by his record productions and songs. And he came to New York, and uh, he called me one day and asked if I'd like to write with him. And I was so surprised that he did, but it was because of the friendship that he had with somebody that knew me. And I went and I wrote with him, and we wrote within a matter of a half hour. One of my favorite writing things, and meeting him the first time, and I came in with a little bit of something, so not to make a fool of myself. And that kind of started it, and we wrote, I can't wait until I see my baby's face for... Baby Washington, who had number one record with it, and Pat Thomas at number five jazz record, and then Aretha Franklin cut it, and so we had, we had one for we had one for one with writing, and he called me to write something for Garnett Mims, and I wrote this ballad with him called "Try," just a little bit harder, and it was like an Otis Redding thing. Yeah, try just a little bit harder uh-huh. to make her love you. I tell myself like that, and he called me. He called me one day and he said, Chip, you know that song we wrote for Garnett? 
He said, you think you can change it into an up-tempo song? And he said, I need, need it by tomorrow. Well, uh, Lorraine Ellison is coming up for a session on, uh, and they're listening to things on Tuesday or something. So this was Sunday, and I and I knew I wanted to make I had a, I didn't have a bookie at that period of time. The bookie had dropped me, and I had to make a bet at the racetrack on Monday at 1 o'clock. So I said, I'll see you at 10 in the morning. I'll have something. And so that night, Sunday, I... I took a song of mine that was not very popular, but I, that I loved the groove of, and I fit, tried just a little bit harder than words we had written for for Garnet Mims, and tried to make it fit and work. And I brought it in the next morning, and, and we made a little demo of it at a Jerry Ragger voice place, and uh, I, I left them at around uh, twelve o'clock and got out to the ra- racetrack in time to bet my horse I wanted to bet. So, now that's the motivation. That was a good day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that'll, uh, that'll get pen to paper. <laughs> yeah. So, so uh, <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. Uh, and then, so yeah. did you know Janice was cutting it? You know, I didn't know. I I, I knew that Lorraine cut it, mm-hmm. and then I didn't know that Janice was covering it, and. Uh, I heard it the first time driving down to, to the city, and they, they announced this is the new Janis Joplin thing, and they played it. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that must have been pretty exciting. Yeah. You know, like, like you, you mentioned Aretha, you know, let's face it, probably the, the voice of the 20th century, uh, certainly the latter half of the 20th century. And now here's Janice, who, had she lived long enough, uh, you know, w- might be considered in, in those terms. I mean, she definitely had uh, quite the unique uh, voice. So that must have been pretty exciting to, uh, to hear her uh, belting out your, your, your song. Yeah, she was one of a kind singer. I mean, and it, it's wonderful for the people who championed her. It, it showed you what the era was like. Because just before that, a voice like Janice's would never have been allowed on the radio. Right. Because it didn't sound like a, a typical voice, you know? Yeah, so, it, it, it was a little raggedy, a little untrained, uh, perhaps, might uh, be a good way to put it. Right, right. And But the wonderful thing was, at that period of time, people were, were letting soul take over from perfection and and Janice had that in spades and she was amazing. That and I, I congratulate all the people around that that really championed her, that opened their hearts to her and that, that was that was wonderful. Yeah. And she's the one I I met her one time and I just had a really nice feeling for her. Yeah, it's it's too bad that she died so young. Um, I, I yeah. think there was a lot going. On. I mean, obviously, with with Pearl that came out just after her passing, proved that uh, you know she was something to to really uh, you know was just just about ready to be a giant, an international uh, superstar. All right, so how did you get involved in the outlaw country scene? Well, what happened was is that that's later that's later sixties, early seventies, right? Yeah. I mean, it's like I came out of writing, you know, being doing all this writing of, of the hits and then all of a sudden toward the end of the sixties you have the singer songwriters that are now being accepted, you know. Yeah. So I I am coming back and uh, making an album called Gasoline, uh, for Buddha Records and it's, uh, I think, 1971 or something like that. That's my first album that I recorded. And, uh, you know, it's, I recorded other singles before that back in the, you know, the early 60s. 
but this is the first time. Then I wrote a little history of the other people. And then I'm starting to record myself and trying to figure out what I want to do. And then what I decide I want to do is to make this album called Last Chance that really the songs all wrote themselves very fast. And it, they, were, they were my return to my country feelings, more, you know, more directly influenced by country. And I was at the same time when Grant Parsons was there and uh, Willie and Waylon were, were leaving the, the, the mainstream country to try not to do the cookie cutter kind yeah, of thing. To get yeah, out of the, the Nashville sound. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And, and also you had John Prine that was coming over and, uh, you know, coming from Chicago and, and I was playing, I would share the stage with him in New York and with, and, and, and then Chris, Chris Christopherson, he would become the town and we would spend time together. And so it's like we all were kind of into this other thing than straight ahead country, you know. It was like at least trying not to do it in the way that they were trying to, the country people were trying to always make you write these songs that sound like hits, you know. And uh, like everybody did, but uh, uh, oh, they they had a they had a hardcore system there in Nashville. Yeah, yeah, and this is still the same way. <laughs> right, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. In so many ways, it's still the same way. Yeah. I, I did have country, I did have country hits as an artist. You know, some you know top twenty and a couple a couple of things on the charts, but that was quite kind of how did that happen? You know. <laughs> Because uh, I wasn't doing it the way they they would want you to do it, mm-hmm. but because uh, so mainly it was just a wonderful period of time to have all those free spirited people that had country feelings and uh, just uh, in that and it, you know that's the kind of I guess what you call the Americana of the day, you know, yeah, the, the beginning the, of the country rock or old yeah, country, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, you know, it it reminds me of what you said about Janice that, uh, you know, uh, before her, you know, before that moment in time, you know, a voice like that just was not accepted by radio and, uh, you know, the establishment. And uh, and, you know, she had this emotional connection that just poured out of the speakers. And it sounds like that's similar to this, you know, what we call outlaw country, getting away from the perfection that was uh, uh, the Nashville sound and into something right. a little more heartfelt, a little bit more uh, right. uh, uh, emotional yeah. connection out there. And it was wonderful. You know, Graham's stuff was great. Oh, yeah. Graham Parsons Chris's stuff was great. And John Prine's stuff was great. And there was only a couple of stations that would play this kind of music. There was one Coke FM in, in Austin, Texas, and one KFAT in Santa Cruz. And, and uh, I remember going to Austin, Texas and playing with Tom T. Hall at the Armadillo World Headquarters. And I walked in there and I was like a, a star in the town. They were playing my records around the clock. And then Santa Cruz, they were using the real thing, which was the first track and last chance. They were using that as a theme song. And, yeah, it was good, good, good times, very good times. Yeah, and that's the early '70s, and uh, that kind of grows into um, this this music genre, which we we call outlaw country. But then by 1980, you you kind of sour on the the whole uh, music business, right? Yeah, I had I had look. I don't like to really talk about it, but it became a very political thing, and and it probably what happened to me is just as well that it happened. And I certainly understood everybody's side of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
But I had I had recorded an album called Saint Sebastian. And in that album, there was a song called One Night Out with the Boys. And CBS, I was going to be on CBS, and, and but they couldn't. The national divisions wouldn't promise to promote you because, and I don't blame them because there are other people that the national division cultivated themselves. They didn't want the pop division to send them down somebody and say, you've got to promote this. And so uh, I went to Capitol under the promise that they were going to promote it and that the assistant to the head of promotion flew in to when I signed when I was about to sign and promised me that they would promote my single and and uh, when it came time to do it my record started to break and then the head of promotion who wasn't at the meeting he decided it wasn't uh, he wanted to have his own people that he signed and that he nurtured get the promotion and not have an outsider like me and I I understood it I did understand it, but it was a it was kind of a devastating Still a thing. bitter pill. It was, yeah. But you know what I said to myself? I was starting to feel like I was getting stale a little bit. Oh. And that that I was trying too hard, even though One Night Out with the Boys was a wonderful little single. And I, I just decided, oh, I, 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 I love gambling. And I was going back and forth doing both, you know, for a long time. I said, ah, let me take a break from this and, and just go ahead and and gamble, and, and that's what I did. Yeah. Well, and that seemed to work out pretty good for a few years for you as well. Yeah, I, I loved every minute of it. I love I love doing it. I love working with my partner Ernie Dalman, and uh, I love you know I love counting cards, but I didn't like getting banned from the casino. But <laughs> I turned to horses, and that was a real love for me, the horses. And, and uh, but then I loved you know coming back and. and well, in, in 1995, yeah. Well, uh, being banned for counting cards in the casinos, um, talk about outlaw country. You, you're living the lifestyle. You, you're very authentic, yeah. my friend. Uh, here, so, yeah. <laughs> so that's pretty amazing. Now, these days, you know, you, your name is spoken in the same manner as Chris Christopherson, Willie Nelson, Town Van Sant. You know, why do you think it took so long for the public to catch up with you? Is it, you know, maybe that what we talked about was Spotify has kind of opened this door for you so that people mm -hmm. can instead of you know they have to make a choice in the old days of like i only have ten dollars and i have to spend <laughs> it on this or this and gosh yeah, i'm yeah. to do this yeah well if you bought a towns van zandt record and the chris christopherson and didn't buy my, you did pretty good <laughs> <laughs> oh i don't know i you know it's been a great journey for me to kind of go wow you know there's there's the obvious song so one one big one left that we'll talk about in a second but um you know uh to dive deeper into the catalog uh, which which is hard to do when you have to make choices, economic choices, on you know what your listening habits will be. Whereas today, you know, at your fingertips, you know, you can listen to just about every song yeah. in the world, uh, and it all it yeah. takes is somebody that you may trust their uh, recommendation to at least give it a shot. Uh, that's that's the only thing uh -huh. you have to do. I, you know, and conversely, that that's the other side of the double edged sword. Uh, in today's music business is that there's so much available. It sometimes yeah. is hard to find, you know, the cream yeah, uh, like. out there. Yeah. But, but with some, yeah, you know, you know, for, for me, for me, it's not too hard for me to find out what I like, you know, up there. I mean, you know, it I bounce around through different kind of things. And I guess a lot of things you can go to where something sounds good to you and you hear a, 
some other things that sound good to you. So, I, you know, it's pretty easy f- for me to find, you know, to go hear uh, John Prine and then you just jump around and hear Bill Frizzell or something like that. And, yeah. Well, the, their uh, algorithms yeah. are also pretty good nowadays of going, oh, well, if you like this, you'll probably like yeah. this. <laughs> you know, there's there's that right. as well, definitely. And, yeah. and certainly, you know, for somebody like yourself, which, you know, maybe didn't, you know, get uh, as a, a household name like, uh, like Willie Nelson or Chris Christopherson, but, uh, you know, now – uh, you have this huge collection that uh, you know is like a gold mine when 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 people discover it. You know, uh, mm-hmm. it's it's the mother load. You know, it's really 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 <laughs> it must be great for you uh, these days. So now, an elder statesman in the burgeoning Americana scene uh, and still re- relevant. I mean, you just must be having the time of your life. Well, it is a it is a good time. Man. It, yeah, like I said, this the, the new album, uh, Whiskey Salesman, talks a lot about my love for my my wife Joan, as well as my love for my friends and, yeah. and the bar I go to, and, and and to settle into that. But that's a spirit. Like I played it, I played it up to New York State and up in Canada. It's the first time I've done this since the Last Chance that I played the entire album before I even play my hits, and the audience is so with it. I can't even tell you how it's like just a magic night uh, playing this stuff and playing for these great great fans and yeah, uh, yeah it's just just good so i haven't done that in a while where i played so many songs in a row from one album uh and they, they tolerated. <laughs> oh, more than tolerated, Chip. Yeah, they've been just wonderful. <laughs> yeah, so you're you're still out there touring uh, as much as uh, as ever. You know, obviously with the uh, you know the record industry not bringing in the uh, the revenues that it once did, although it, it's beginning to pick up. Uh, you know, we've talked a little right. bit about that, uh, and and I do uh, you know read the the reports that do show that definitely uh, we passed uh, the peak bottom and. Uh, things are, are moving back yeah. here yeah record companies are starting to make money now and, yeah and yeah. artists and, and i know a fellow that i know is a friend of mine in fact he's the guy that first promoted me on warner brothers and really got the first i had the first hit on warner brothers country because of this guy someone called me as i am and uh and it was i owe it all to this guy this guy became he and a few other people started this firm that now is the biggest company in financial management, they pretty much have everybody in country music and plus Pearl Jam and all these big rock groups. And he was telling me, I have dinner with him every once every month or something like that. He comes in from Nashville. He was telling me that all of a sudden, what they were losing in record sales is all of a sudden being made up with all the other collateral things, I guess mostly to do with streaming. And uh, he said the money... It's starting to get very, very good. So uh, I haven't felt it that like that. I'm not as big as those folks, but that's it seems like it's getting healthy. Yeah. There's plenty of good music out to see these days. I'll tell you that. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, there does seem to be a resurgence both uh, in the recording uh, world and in the the live touring world as well. 
Um, all right. So I, I want to end on what, you know, talking about all these songs and, you know, this this emotional feel, this, you know, writing uh, that ends up being really well in, in the female voice, the more country elements in your style. Yet there's an outlier song, which is the biggest song that you're probably known for. And that's Wild Thing, uh, originally <laughs> recorded by the Trogs, or at least the, the first radio hit version is is the Trogs. Right, right. And then famously covered by the one and only Jimi Hendrix. Um, right. You know, it's funny. I, I had a conversation with Maria Maldor uh, a couple of weeks ago, and she kind of has that one hit, um, Midnight at the <laughs> Oasis. And it's such right. an outlier compared to all of her, you know, 41 album body of work. You're kind of you, you kind of <laughs> have that uh, same sort of feel here with with uh, <laughs> the Trogs, Wild Things. So how, how did you write that compared to these other songs? I'll tell you how that came about, Augusta. A fellow named Jerry Granahan called me at the place where I was signed as a staff writer in that 1650 Broadway building I told you about. Yeah. And he was a writer-producer himself, and I'd never met him. And he called me one day, and he said, uh, listen, Chip, he said, I know you're known as a country writer, but somebody told me you're writing some really interesting rock and roll songs. And I got an album, I got an artist I'm producing in two days, and I've got three songs I like in you think you could send me over one and maybe I can use for the fourth, you know? And, uh, I was so flattered. I said, Jesus, Jerry, let, let me, as soon as we get off the phone, let me just pick up the guitar and see if I can get any ideas or see if, see if I can write something. And if I can get the spirit going, then I'll record it this afternoon. Cause I have a session scheduled to do a country song. I could forget that and, and do this one. So let me give it a try. So I get off the phone and I started to just banging on the guitar and all of a sudden, the chorus of Wild Thing came out, and then I called the engineer up, and I said, look, and I got, I got the start of a song. I want to finish it at the studio, so turn the lights out when I get sit down on my stool and have my microphone ready, and then turn the tape on, and let me see what happens. And so I just went to the studio, and, and all I had was the, the chorus. Well, basically, that's all the song is anyway, but I just... Hey, I knew I was going to stop and say something to this imaginary sexy girl. And uh, I just felt that and then just stopped and just said whatever I felt like saying in the darkness to this girl. And it wasn't much. It didn't <laughs> need I to be much. <laughs> yeah, I think that's the uh, the secrets, secrets uh, thing, the wild thing is the silence. I think too much is made of filling every hole and the wild thing. I didn't fill them for sure. <laughs> so it felt really good to me. They say the muse lies between the notes. Yeah, well, that's well said. Um, after I finished the demo, and the demo, my my engineer, Ron Johnson, he started to cup his hands and just play these little things. It sounds like you have a blade of grass. And I said, what are you doing? He said, uh, how do you do that? He just showed me. He said, are you using grass? He said, no. I said, I like that. I hummed them something. I said, you go on out and play that. And so the little ocarina solo of the year on the Trogs record is something that we did on the demo with Ron Johnson cupping his hands, and which became like a very famous little solo that Reg did. And so I owe a lot to Reg Presley being the band and the boys because they really got the feel of my demo so perfectly. I mean, I was playing it with a big open hole K guitar. And he, they did it with electric guitar, but the feeling was the same sweaty thing. You know? Oh, yeah. 
and Jimmy and Jimmy Hendrix's same sweaty thing, you know, a little slower, but the same kind of feeling. So I owe a lot to Reg and the boys. They were just great guys, and the, they really got it uh, un, unheralded. Yeah. You know? yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Chip Taylor, thanks so much for being with us on Deeper Digs in Rock today. Yeah, it's been my pleasure. You asked a lot of nice questions. Uh, Got me thinking. Maybe I'll stay in this business. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you should stay in this business. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Kristen. everyone chip taylor he really is an icon and i'm glad we can help get him more exposure obviously fuck all the people is reminding a lot of people just how good chip can be i also like many of the other tunes on whiskey salesman including the title track that we played a clip of at the top of the interview which wish i could have played the whole song because it's really funny and rather insightful Uh, but you go check it out yourself Chip Taylor's name should be brought up in conversation with guys like Christopherson, Nelson, Van Zandt, and and other great songwriters of the latter half of the 20th century. And I think that's what I kind of want to bring up today. Uh, not, Not a big revelation, but a reminder. The song's the thing. Without a stroke of genius in the writing, all the rest will fall apart. It begins with the chords that are interesting and indelible, uh, rhythms that add the feel and the gut, hooks that prick the brain, and lyrics that actually mean something. Stir and add a pinch of authentic emotionalism, and you got yourself a great song. The reason the songs from 50 years ago are still resonating today is because they were just that good. The, the competition was that good, and so you had to be that good. And to be fair, technology to build these particular songs came along at the exact time to allow an immense amount of creativity and uniqueness that is understandably harder and harder to achieve today. Uh, Today's songwriters also don't live in a monoculture, and that does also make circumstances very different. I, I totally get that. But there's a huge difference in songs of sustainable quality from... Today's Max Martins, Mark Ronson's, Dr. Luke's of the world compared to a Chip Taylor who began his career over 50 years ago. Or as Chip said in the interview, uh, people were letting soul take over for perfection. Uh, That seems like a good place to return to. It may be a different world and all, but uh, it still starts with a great song. I hope uh, I'm wrong uh, and that uh, I'm just being nostalgic, Uh, but uh, somehow I I think I'm not. The songs today are made for immediate consumption to be replaced, uh, you know, like a carton of milk. And the songs from yesterday 
just weren't. Um, I think that's my point. All right. And because listening to all of Chip's songs while putting this together, it brought me back to Linda Ronstadt. You know, her new live in a Hollywood album opens with Chip's song, I Can't Let Go. And Linda reminds us what a towering talent she is with this version. So, so let's end with two geniuses uh, in my thought. Chip's song put into Linda's pipes. Here's how you keep up the rocket. I tried, I tried, but I can't say goodbye. Deeper Digs in Rock, produced and hosted by Kristen Swain. All sound design and incidental music by Busy Signal Studios. Find all of our shows, notes, social, and links at www.pantheonpodcast.com or wherever you listen to great podcasts. All songs can be found for purchase on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. Please purchase these great and important tracks. Find us on Facebook at the RNRAP. We are on Instagram at RNR Archaeology. Tweet us at RNR Archaeology. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.